I don't know how far in we are at this point, but I think this is the 10th or 11th sermon now in Joshua. Joshua chapter 7, I'm going to, re- I'm going to read the first 11 verses. I am cl- clearly aware of the fact that I'm breaking off a context. I'm doing this with great intention. Um, and so with that said, I'll read Joshua chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, reading through verse 11. This is, again, the word of the living God. So let's give attention to it even as it is read. Joshua chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed people, or killed about 36 of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Amen. This is the word of the living God. The newspapers of Cincinnati recorded a story, a rather interesting story, that a poorly dressed woman went in to see a particular doctor asking him to make an x-ray examination of her heart free of cost. She claimed that she was very poor and couldn't pay. The doctor, of course, out of of compassion for her, consented to do the work. But when he turned his machine a little below the heart, he saw a concealed pocket in which was a purse with five $20 gold pieces. After the examination, the woman asked about the findings. The doctor said, your heart is very bad. You lied when you said you were poor. In like manner, all secret things will come to light before Almighty God. So consider what is indeed one of the darker chapters in the book of Joshua and the events that surround the fall of uh, the people uh, uh, due to the sin of this one family line, the line of Achan. 
I wonder, as you have heard the word read and have even heard this rather interesting story of a supposed poor woman, if there is not in your own life some secret sin that you are not dealing with. I know it may seem, at least to you and to all that are watching, that it is going on undetected. That it is not that which is uh, uh, being revealed. It is not showing itself up on a regular basis in the public eye. It's not as though everyone in this room is looking with an x-ray machine and can see just exactly what is occurring. But it is being seen. It is not going without note. It is not going without notice. For the God of heaven sees it. Now, while it is true, of course, that each one of us in this room sin and do sin every day in thought, word, and deed, the question, of course, is not whether we sin. The question is, what do we do with it? The question is whether when confronted with it, uh, we deal with it, that we repent of it, that we are ready to make amends for it if needful. Too often what happens in the church, too often what happens with people is they try to bury it, they try to shift it, they blame shift, they do all sorts of other things in order to hide it from others, even God himself, and that eventually leads to calamities of all nature, even a calamity of such public nature as we see here in the seventh chapter of Joshua. Is there in your life any secret sin. Friend, I can only tell you by the authority of the Word of God that you are not getting away with it. You may think so. You may say to yourself, I'm not seeing any fire from heaven nor meteors coming any time on the horizon. The church seems to be growing and the church seems to be prospering and there seems to be a lot of good things happening to me. Therefore, God must be blessing me even in my sin. It's funny how sin confuses the mind causes one to justify the behavior, causes one to make all sorts of excuses as to why one doesn't have to deal with it. But deal with it you must. Because secret sin has a funny way of showing up in the public eventually. And when it does that, it brings shame and reproach to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is essentially the issue in this seventh chapter. We have, don't we, a secret sin, an event unbeknown, unknown to the people, unknown to Joshua, unknown to everyone except God and the perpetrator, an event that took place that led to public disaster for the church of old. It is here in the seventh chapter, in the wake of what should be the celebration of the conquering of Jericho, turns into great grief and mourning for the people as they fight against a far weaker foe and get thoroughly trounced because of some secret sin that has occurred within the church. And so I want to show you the reality of secret sin and the great tragedy it brings when God's people do not deal with it. I know it doesn't sound very encouraging. I recognize that. But it is indeed a tragedy. I want to show you the tragedy, the reality of secret sin, and 
the great tragedy it brings when God's people do not deal with it as they should. Two points as we consider these 11 verses really in a topical arranged way throughout these, this section of chapter 7. First, we'll consider the identification of hidden sin and then the tragedy of hidden sin. The identification and the tragedy of hidden sin. First, the identification of this hidden sin. The setting is quite obvious, isn't it? While it is true that we have this very strong contrast word there that heads verse 1 of chapter 7, but this, it, this uh, links for all time this event to the events that preceded it in chapter 6. What was that? That was the events of great victory, of great celebration, of great joy in seeing the God of heaven fight for his people as we noted last week. A reality and a promise and a hope that you and I hold on to, I think, and at least we should, on a daily basis. That the God of heaven fights for us. But... Chapter 7 starts, it, 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 the, the sun comes up in chapter 7 with this very daunting, very disturbing, almost depressing line that you would not expect in relationship to what just occurred. But, the narrator says, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. This is not a commendation. This is not a, 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 a word. These are not words of encouragement of, of any kind. You can almost read as you read. You can almost see the storm clouds forming over top of the chapter as it's introduced by these, 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 these most striking, almost paralyzing words in light of what has just happened in chapter 6. What are these words telling us? What are they referring to? Well, clearly they're referring to an offense of some kind. Set right against the setting of the victory of Jericho, we have the offense now beginning to be unfolded before us. Now, it's important to remember that we have the advantage of the written text. That we can see, even scan ahead, and see just exactly what is this line of chapter 1, what, what, is, what is the issue? What, what is easy to forget and as we consider it is that the people have no idea what has happened. To them, it is all secret. As they are off reveling in the victory of Jericho, this word comes that they have devoted, they have violated the command of God, they have offended Him, they have ignored the command that God has given. Yahweh had specifically told them to keep themselves from the devoted things. And we see this in chapter 6 and verses 18 and 19. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But, but all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury 
of the Lord. This was the command. It's as plain as the nose on your face. Don't keep anything for yourself. Nothing. Not a goat, not a sheep, not a piece of, not a gold penny or nickel or dime or quarter. Nothing is to be kept for yourself. It is all to be devoted to the Lord. But they ignored it. They did not keep it. They did not honor it. They did, just as the opening lines of the chapter tell us, they broke faith. Put a different way, they disobeyed. They broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Thus the command was transgressed. What's interesting is that the way the narrator establishes the transgression. You need to read carefully. You need to observe. Let me read it again. But the people of Israel broke faith with regard to the devoted things. Now, you know the story. In fact, you know it so well that you probably read those words and hasten right on to the perpetrator. Who is it singularly that did this thing? But the narrator makes this a corporate sin, resulting in a corporate response, a corporate culmination from God, a judgment against them, not just the person who did it, but the entire people. They broke faith. The people of Israel broke faith and regarded to the devoted things. But it doesn't stop there. It continues to go on and then highlight for us in a more specific fashion an individual wounding against the covenants, against the promise, against the command. When it tells us who it is. Again, you're reading this from this side of the event. You see it. You know it all plainly and well. It's right there in the Light of day, Joshua doesn't know anything about this. The people of Israel don't know anything about this. You get the advantage. The narrator tells you that Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, there's got to be some biblical theological reference to that, but I haven't figured figured it out yet, maybe someday. What's important to see here is that this individual is named. He tells us who is guilty of this transgression. It's a name that will go on in infamy throughout the, throughout the oracles of the Bible. If you turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter, you don't need to turn. I'm just going to read one little isolated verse. But in 1 Chronicles chapter uh, 2, in verse 7, it's a good thing I checked my cross-references earlier because I had Second Chronicles for some unknown reason. First Chronicles chapter 2, verse 7, the son of Carmi, Achan, note, the troubler of Israel who broke faith in the matter of the devoted thing. This is right smack dab in that long, big, giant, huge chronology where all Bible reading plans go to die. Here it is. 
this is the guy, and this is how he is known. The guy is, that troubled Israel, the guy that is the one who violated the command, who took the devoted things, who violated that which God had told him not to do. So we have a corporate wounding. We have an individual wounding here in this opening verse. All of it done in secret. I again remind you and say for the third time now in this sermon that the people have no idea that this has occurred. I emphasize that for a reason. This act was done in secret under the cover of darkness that no one else knew. The only people that knew were Achan and probably anybody who helped him. Any of his family members, those alongside of him. But that was it. Joshua had no idea. The people of Israel had no idea. Nobody else knows. I've done this thing. I broke God's law. I don't care that I broke God's law. I'm going to do what I want to do. But nobody's ever going to know. When I was a boy growing up, I was told to not do many things. You probably can guess that I dispensed with most of those directives. But there is one that I remember very plainly, very clearly. There's many, but this one I remember. You don't think God has a sense of humor? When I was a little boy, one of the things that I would love to do was to sneak off into the kitchen when nobody was looking. And you know when you're doing it because you look around. See if anybody's there, you know, okay. I was specifically told not to take cookies out of the cookie jar without asking multiple times, I might add. I stuck in the kitchen. I wanted my cookies. They were probably peanut butter cookies. Looked around, stuck in the jar. I had to get up on the ledge of the counter at the bottom of the the. the, the, the bottom of the counter, I don't know how to describe it, but you know where I'm, the, underneath the counter. I had to open the door, step up on the ledge so I could reach the jar, and I couldn't quite reach it, so I got up a little bit further, and I'm hanging over there precipitously, getting the thing, and I get it down on the counter, and then I slip and I fall, and I land right on the door that's open from the counter, and I got this big, huge bruise on my leg. Thinking to myself, how am I ever going to hide this? They're going to know. And sure enough, they did. Now, it's a silly illustration, I realize, but the point is this. Didn't say secret long. Secret sins do not say secret very long. Joshua is not aware of it. The people of God are not aware of it. But hidden sin is not hidden to God. God knew. How is it that the narrator knew who this person is? How is it that we think that we can commit sin and hold on to it and refuse to deal with it and think that it will never be found out? Hidden sin is not hidden to God. He sees every sin, every every transgression. You cannot hide from Him. Others may not know, but God knows. God knows, he sees, he's aware, every single time. The problem with sin, of course, is that we convince ourselves that God doesn't see, God doesn't doesn't know, 
In fact, the reality of hidden sin is that we're more worried about what other people might see or know than we are that the God of heaven sees and knows. What does that say about our spiritual condition? Jeremiah 16, I don't know why this is in here, but we're going to find out in a minute. Jeremiah 16. Oh, yes. Verses 17 and 18. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. God sees. Let that burn in real deep. God sees. Now look, I'm a Christian like you. I'm journeying this life like you. I may be standing up here, but it doesn't change the fact that I wrestle with sin like you. God sees. The question, of course, is are we going to deal with it when we know that he sees? Are we going to resolve to deal with it? Are we going to confess it? Are we going to repent of it? Are we going to turn the other way? Or are we going to pretend like he doesn't see? People who insist on pretending that he doesn't see continue and persist in their sin, leading to disaster. And that's where it always leads. Hidden sin is not hidden to God. Second, hidden sin, secret sin, leads to a lack of success. Nobody in this room wants to be unsuccessful. We're not talking about material prosperity here, but nobody wants to be unsuccessful. Proverbs 28, verse 13. This is one of those sermons where I wish I'd marked my Bible up, but anyway. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But, here's the comforting side of this. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Third, not only is hidden sin not hidden to God, hidden sin hinders any kind of success. Hidden sin shuts God's ears to your prayers. Psalm 66, 18 and 19. Many years ago, I was counseling a young lady. She wasn't all that young. Younger than me. She came to me. Her concern was that she didn't think God heard her when she prayed. Knowing a little bit about her life, I wasn't all that surprised that she thought that. She was living with an unsaved man. Didn't care that she was living with an unsaved man. She was transgressing the law of God, not only in secret, but in open, in the open. And everybody knew it. The whole town knew it. And she's worried about the fact that God can't hear her when she prays. Well, no kidding. Deal with your sin. Your ears are shut. Who in this room wants God's ears shut to their prayers? That's actually too terrible to even contemplate. Much easier to repent. Seek forgiveness. Fourth, hidden sin affects the people of God. You see, here's the rub, isn't it? You think it doesn't. You fool yourself into believing that this hidden sin that you've got buried and nobody else will ever know about isn't actually hurting the church. 
isn't hindering the church in some capacity, in some way. This chapter debunks that idea entirely. Sin affects the body. Just like a small sliver in your finger will affect the entirety of your body, will give pain in other places of your body that you didn't even know existed. Stubbing your toe in the middle of the night, it's just a toe after all, but the entirety of your body aches as a result. Small virus intrudes into the body and it lays you up for weeks. Hidden sin affects the people of God. I did hear, in the seventh chapter, it does here in the 21st century. You may think you're only hurting yourself, if you're even thinking that, but it is untrue. You are first offending a holy God, and by doing so, you are hurting your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, secret sin isn't all that secret, is it? Secret sin isn't all that innocent, is it? Secret sin has the potential to bring great damage against the church. Now, it is true, as I've said already, it is true that we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. We all fall short of God's glory. There's nobody in this room that can stand up with any integrity and say, I love God like I'm supposed to, all the time, every minute of every day. No, you don't. And the secret sin would be to convince yourself that you do when you don't. We do. We fall short of God's glory. We sin daily in thought, word, and in deed. But brothers and sisters, there's a difference between wrestling with indwelling sin and sometimes losing that battle and transgressing God's law and refusing to deal with it. There's a huge difference. The story I gave you by way of illustration a few moments ago, that very point was thrown right in my face. Well, you sin, yes, every day. Well, then there, there you go. No, not there you go. I'm dealing with my sin so far as the Lord tells me what it is. Are you? No. You refuse to turn. You refuse to repent. You refuse to change. There is a difference, isn't there? The godly hear the commands of God. They hear His law and mourn their failure and repent and turn from it. The ungodly, however, are those who live in sin. They love their sin. They refuse to turn from their sin. And due to the deceitfulness of, of sin, they think they can hide from their sin and from, hide from God. They can hide their sin from God. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? What was one of the first things that our first parents did when they sinned? Hide! That's what we do. I think this chapter has been put in the Bible, this chapter in Joshua 7, everything's going along just swimmingly. Things couldn't have been better. We run headlong into chapter 7, it's like full stop, hit the brakes, learn a lesson here. And what is that lesson? Don't get too carried away with thinking you're all that. If you got sin in your life, you're not dealing with it, trouble's coming. Adam and Eve found out rather rapidly that it's no fun to play hide-and-seek with God. You can't either. There may be some of you here that think your secret sin will never be discovered. You know, it may not be. 
The elders of the church may not find out. No one in the room might find out. There's not enough time in this sermon to retell the countless lives that have been ruined by people who think they can hide their sin. From unfaithfulness in marriage, to cheating on taxes, to lying to a boss, engaging in sinful behavior on the internet, etc., 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 etc. It's not a secret to God. I know you're the only one in that room, men. God sees it. Deal with it. Get away from it. If you can't control it, throw it out the window. They may be secret, but they are sins that will ruin you and others. Sin in the camp is not a small matter. It is a matter that must be eradicated. It will lead to ruin. And it did in this chapter. The tragedy that came from the hidden sin of Achan and his ilk. We have given to us, beginning with verse 2, the very actions of Joshua that tell us plainly that he is oblivious to what has transpired. He has no knowledge of verses 1 and 2. None. As far as he is concerned, God is with them. As far as he is concerned, everything is great and wonderful. Nothing could be better. And so he acts on that assumption, doesn't he? He's oblivious, and so he sends out the spies into the land, as any good general would do. And they come back with this report, and basically, here's the summary of the report. They're nothing. We've got them. Send 3,000 people. Don't spare any more. This is a piece of cake. 3,000 people, that's it. Out of how many hundreds of thousands of men ready for war? 3,000. That tells you that AI is a pretty puny, insignificant bunch when it comes to the people of God. Don't only send 3,000, he's told. He's advised by his advisors from the Pentagon, just send 3,000. That should be more than sufficient to wipe out these people. And so war is declared, and based on the good report of the spies, Joshua orders 3,000 men to go and take Ai. He has the comfort of the report, but also the comfort of God's promises that he will be with his people. A refrain that we have revisited time and time again throughout this narrative. I will be with you. I will fight for you. I will take the land for you. I will give you the land. I've given you the land. On it goes. Joshua has all of these comforts. He's got no reason to question or even think for even one second that doom is on the horizon. And so war is declared. The battle is lost. Lost. Convincingly. Thoroughly. Beaten. This battle is so puny in the eyes of Israel that it would almost be as though the New York Yankees were playing against some Little League team from Evansville. This is the the, the comparison. And they are destroyed. The people should have won easily. They lose in a terrible, terrible way. But it's interesting, isn't it? That the refrain of the 3,000 men is mentioned not once, but twice here in the narrative between verses 2 and verse 5. 
it's easy to miss the graciousness of God here. You might think, how is he gracious? They've just been beaten. Joshua could have committed his entire army, and they would have all been destroyed. Joshua committed ten times the amount that he was advised to commit, and they would have all been destroyed. You see, God was angry. And His holiness dictated His response against the people. Why? Because there's sin in the camp. There's a problem. And it hasn't been dealt with. It hasn't been handled. And so how does the nation respond to such horrible events? The hearts of the people melt. That is to say, they mourn. They're in distress. They don't understand. Again, they still don't know What is going on? From their vantage point, it's as though God had abandoned them and they don't have an answer. But not only does the nation respond, Joshua responds as well. Look how the text puts it in verse 6. Now you've got to be Joshua. You've got to enter into his head with the ringing of the promises in the ears of this great leader, this great servant of the Lord, on the eve, or on the, the dawning of a great victory that had just occurred in chapter 6. Now Joshua, he, at the, at the, at the, in the face of this horrible defeat, how does he respond? Well, with agony and mourning. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. This is a figure, this is a picture of abject mourning. It's the same kind of picture that Job himself went through. In Job chapter 1, when he heard the report of his children being killed by, this, by, by the efforts of the evil one. No rejoicing here. Still oblivious, still not understanding, he is mourning, uh, presuming mourning at the reality that God had abandoned them, that the promises were not true, that God had lied somehow. Because he has doubt, doesn't he? Verse 7, Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? This sounds just like the people. You know, whenever there was opposition, ah, we'll just go back to Egypt. Joshua doesn't know. Why have you done this? To give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before the enemies? The Canaanites and all the inhabitants, all these people, they're going to hear about this and we're going to be destroyed. He's doubting. He questions the very promises of God. But God responds, doesn't he? He doesn't leave his servant there wondering and wallowing and struggling. He speaks to him. Much the same way God speaks to us in the church and through the preaching of the word and through the scriptures. He speaks, he says, he proclaims, he says to Joshua, verse 10, a command. Get up. 
That sounds so gentle. Here's the servant of the Lord in abject misery, on his face, mourning, and the elders there. You can almost hear them. You can see them. They're gathered in this little clutch around the Ark of the Covenant. Jehovah comes along and says, get up. Get up, Joshua. If I were Joshua, I'd have been like, what? And then he asks him this really odd question, doesn't he? It's like he doesn't know. Why have you fallen on your face? It is a question. It's a question designed to elicit a response, to set the frame for him to hear what he's about to hear in just the very next phrase. There's sin in the camp. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. Notice that God makes no distinction here between the sin of Achan and the sin of the people. They have sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Jehovah comes as a prosecutor and lays forth the indictment. Joshua, the reason the people got creamed, the reason they lost, the reason their enemies was powerful over them is because there's sin in my church. And I will not bless you until you purge that leaven from within. God, though abundant in mercy, in sparing the lives of many in the narrative, still sees many dead. 36 of the men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck him at the descent. Verse 5, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Death is in the camp at the hands of the sin of the people. The providence of only sending 3,000. God still responds in anger about the sin that is in the camp. Next week we're going to see the way in which it is dealt with the way in which it is handled, eradicated. For now, what matters from this text is that we must come to terms with the fact that sin can never remain hidden. God sees it. It hurts everyone. Here in this chapter, it hurt the people. It hurt Joshua. It hurt the elders. And it brought shame against the holy name of God. The people of God were unaware of the sin. And as they seek to take Ai, they fail. The sin in the camp has led to a bitter loss at the hands of their enemy. Sin in the camp will lead to bitter loss in this church. Don't think the lie that it won't. 
It's precisely why the church has church discipline. It's precisely why Paul talks about eradicating the leaven from within the midst of the people. Getting rid of the cancer that will eat away at the entire body. It will indeed hurt. Remember that secret sin may seem to be secret, but it really isn't. So what do you do if you know about sin in your life? You're not dealing with it? You know what it is. Before the God of heaven, you know what it is. Now you can try to lie to him, but you will be unsuccessful. What is it? I don't have any secret insight into your hearts, by the way, so what do you do? Well, you know, it's really simple and hard. Confess it before the Lord. There is no sin so great, no sin so great that his mercy is not greater. He will forgive and he does. How many times, brothers and sisters, has he forgiven you? Second, if necessary, confess it before others. If necessary. Not all sin needs to be confessed before other people. Don't be getting crazy here. When I was a boy growing up, I used to have this really bad habit. I don't know what my problem was. I must have been insane or something. But I would have these negative thoughts about my grandmother. She was a little, well... And I would tell her and apologize. She never heard one of them. Finally, my father intervened, thankfully, and took me off the hook. And he said, son, you don't need to tell your grandmother that you had that thought. Just confess it to Jesus. Boy, that was liberating. But you may have to. If it's a scandalous nature, unfaithfulness in marriage, stealing from your employer, lying on your taxes, whatever, pick one. Confessing it and making it right and seeking to restore what has been wronged is proof that you are truly repentant. Third, and probably the hardest of the two, of the three, rest on the grace of Christ and determine with his help to put to death that sin. Rest in the grace of Christ. Don't justify it. Don't rationalize it. Confess it. Leave it with him. You've been forgiven. Move on. In your life. Pastorally, let me offer you a few words as to why. It's really a shame that people aren't here that could be here this afternoon because this is where I get a little more personal in sermons sometimes and oftentimes in the afternoon services. I don't know, maybe it's just the passage. Let me offer you a few words as to why I pastor the way I do. Because I know the deceitfulness of sin, because I'm a sinner. And I know how easy it is to deceive myself. I know how easy it is for you to do so as well. So I put a lot of stock and effort in preaching, as you probably already can tell. It is central as a primary means of grace to the Christian is through preaching that you hear the words of Christ, and sometimes they come directly to your heart. Do not resist it. Look, I don't ride around with you all day long, so I don't know what you're doing. Contrary to what you might think, but there is somebody who does. 
Don't resist it. It is a supernatural work of preaching that reaches the consciences and hearts of people. It is God's gracious act to call you to repent. It's not a judgment. If God wanted to judge you for your secret sin, He would just leave you alone. It's not a judgment. It's an act of grace to have that pointed out in a sermon, even though the words weren't necessarily used in such and such a way. Shorter Catechism, question 89. How is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners. The Spirit of God does that. Not me. The Spirit. Second, you could call this my priority list for the week. For you, prayer. As we should all be doing, I pray for you weekly. You may ask, what do you pray? You may ask, what do you pray? I'm going to tell you right now, so you don't have to ask me later. But you can if you want. What do you pray? I pray that the Lord would guard your soul and keep you firm in his hand and never let you go. That means if you are his and you are clinging jealously to some sin, he will lovingly discipline you. Usually it comes through the ordinary means, through the preaching and the sacraments. However, sometimes it comes in different ways, more severe ways. Like church discipline, which we're going to see next week, two weeks. But all of them are a loving act. They're not meant to harm or hurt. Third, visiting. You might think I'm obsessed with this. I am because pastors don't do it anymore. And I don't think we're better for it. Why visit God's people in their homes? Why do it? Why should pastors do it? Why should they do it? Why should elders do it? Because I'm nosy. You can laugh. I get paid to be nosy. That's a joke. But I am kind of nosy. I kind of have the right to be. I've been asked by the Lord to care for your soul, so I get to be nosy. I might ask you hard questions. You may not like them. I don't ask them because I enjoy it. I can assure you. Sometimes I don't ask it, and I get in the car afterwards and said I should have asked that, and I didn't because I'm chicken. But I do it because I'm jealous for you. I'm charged to guard your soul, and when I see cracks in it, it is my responsibility to lovingly address them as needed so that those secret sins don't become public sins that don't ruin and destroy your soul. Because that's how it all starts. There's not a man alive that gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to go cheat on my wife. Suddenly. No, what ends up happening is cracks and then another crack and another crack. And next thing you know, they're ready. Satan's got them. And boom, they fall right over. You visit in the home so that you might have those conversations in a more comfortable situation in which you might be more likely to say things to me that you wouldn't say in the confines of the hallway of the church where somebody else might hear. I do it for other reasons. But it's there that I can observe you in your common and usual place where you're likely to be more comfortable. With all that being said, I visit you because I love you. I want to help you fight the good fight. 
because I know how easy it is to have secret sin. I want to help you fight the fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we all, as one people, working together against the deceitfulness of sin. We must remember the lesson of secret sin as given in these 11 verses. For they're real, and they can do great damage, not only to your soul, but the souls of others. And commit today, today, to eradicating them. Deal with it. The Lord Jesus Christ will not turn you away. He will embrace you. He will love you. And he will forgive you. He will do all that he said he would do. For your good and for the good of this church. Don't bury your sin. Deal with it according to his kindness and mercy. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for, again, the pointed reminder through a very real passage and a real event. Help us, Lord, not to hide our sins. It's so foolish indeed, Father, to do so, for they're not really hidden. And so we pray that you would by your Spirit, show us those things. And may we be quick to repent of them and press on the work of the kingdom. Keep us from the efforts of the evil one who would seek to destroy. Guard us from his efforts, his devices, his schemes. Be merciful to us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.